0: Welcome to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. Today's Easter Sunday message is The Tale of Two Thomases by Pastor Sean Wood. Okay, let's pray and then we'll come around God's Word. Father, we have so much to celebrate this morning and I pray, as my brother Harold prayed this morning before the service, let us have eyes to see Jesus. Open our eyes and open our hearts, I pray, as we open your Word in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've got your Bibles, I'd like to make your way to John chapter 20. This morning I'd like to talk about a tale of two Thomases. The first Thomas that I'd like to introduce you to is a man by the name of Thomas Jefferson. Most people will have heard of Thomas Jefferson. What you may not know about Thomas Jefferson is that in the year 1819, which was just before Roscoe was born... uh, (laughs) In the year 1819, towards the end of that year, uh, Thomas Jefferson would buy himself a Bible and a razor blade. Yeah. <laughs> and over the coming weeks and months into the year 1820, he would work his way meticulously through the gospel accounts. And he would remove every reference to the deity of Christ and every reference to the miraculous. You can. Over a period of time, he would cut and paste the Gospels to shape a Jesus that he wanted and a Jesus that was comfortable for him. He always thought that Jesus taught good morals, and he always considered that what Jesus had to say was good for for social reform and building communities. But any reference to the resurrection, any reference to Jesus being God, any reference to the miraculous brought amazing weight of implications to Thomas Jefferson, and he didn't like it. Today, if you've got nothing better to do, you could purchase a copy of that cut and paste Bible. It's called the Jefferson Bible. I wouldn't waste your time. But Thomas Jefferson in 1819, although he took a razor blade to the Bible, many people today attempt to take a razor blade to Christ. We still want to remove the uncomfortable implications that Jesus brings to our lives. We still want to be the driver's seat of our own lives. We, we want to have Jesus and we can take him on and off the shelf when it's convenient. We want a Jesus that loves us and forgives us and is kind and merciful, but we don't want a Jesus that confronts our sin. We don't want a Jesus that comes not as merely a friend, but also as our Lord and as our master. What I love about Resurrection Sunday is it demands that we put the razor blade down. Many of us in this room, if we're, if we're honest, we would have had doubts. <laughs> and often we think that doubts are wrong and we shouldn't have doubts, but I want to introduce, introduce you today to the second Thomas. Uh, Thomas the disciple, who we always diss him as being the doubting Thomas, the the, the doubting disciple but bear in mind uh, as we work our way through this account what brings us here please remember that mary magdalene has already been to the tomb mary magdalene has already come back to all of the disciples and said hey guess what i couldn't find jesus but i saw him outside the tomb and was talking to him and all of the disciples disbelieved her thomas wasn't first For those who read the pastor's comments this morning, uh, Luke tells us that that this news reached the ears of disciples like an idle tale. I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know where your heart is at, but uh, I I believe that Thomas and uh, what Jesus has to to teach us and to show us today can apply to anybody on any spectrum this morning. Uh, Can we begin our journey looking at uh, Thomas the disciple? Chapter 20 of Gospel of John, verse 24. It says, now Thomas, Uh, before we go any further, we've been introduced to Thomas Jefferson, we'll forget him now because he has no more weight on what we want to say, but Thomas the disciple, who is this guy, what do we know of Thomas? Uh, More about the rest of his life later, more about how he ended his life later. But what brings us to the Gospel of John, chapter 20? What we do know of Thomas, very little from the other Gospels, but in the Gospel of John, we see that he does have a relationship and a devotion to Christ. He must have, because back in chapter 11, Jesus says, you know what, I need to go back to Jerusalem. And he says, uh, everybody says, why would you want to go back? They're seeking to stone you there. I means something a little bit different then than it does today, but... Uh, What Thomas goes on to say is, even if we must die with him, let us go to Jerusalem with him. Well, that's interesting. Obviously, Thomas had convictions concerning Christ. Obviously, he had a a passion and devotion to Christ. Maybe that describes you this morning. Jesus loves us so much that he won't allow us to remain there. He doesn't remain, we can't remain with just lip service because we know what happens uh, just a few short weeks later. Uh, The the raising of Lazarus, which is in John 11, we're talking only days and weeks after that, the the resurrection. It's just after uh, uh, Lazarus is raised that we read of the triumphal entry. In fact, that's the reason people were there to meet him. Because... Fame of him had spread. And Thomas, later on, he's, he's a guy that he doesn't hide his doubts. And maybe he's got something to teach us all this morning. Maybe, maybe it's not fruitful to hide our doubts. Maybe we should be honest about them because in, in chapter 14, Jesus has a conversation about, I go to prepare a place for you and, and, and I will bring you to myself. And Thomas says, we don't even know where you're going. How could we possibly know the way? And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But Thomas was honest. Everybody else is quiet. Thomas is like, you know what? I'm going to speak up for everybody here. We have no idea where you're going. We have no idea what you're talking about. Thomas must be a holy man. There's no doubt. Because in a few short verses after this, he will say with the rest of the disciples, I'm going fishing. Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus first came Interesting, uh, what precedes this is the account of Mary Magdalene at the tomb and Mary goes to the tomb. Interesting that after everything Jesus had said, Jesus was not shy. Jesus didn't disclose this. This wasn't a secret. Jesus was open with his disciples. I am going to suffer. I'm going to die. I'm going to be raised three days later. No, no secret. But however, the ladies take spices to the tomb, which is interesting. Uh, but when they get there, they realize that the stone has been rolled away and, and that the tomb is empty. And Mary begins a conversation with somebody outside the tomb. She thinks he's the gardener. One glorious gardener, right? (laughs) Mary teaches us something and maybe the disciples have a lesson to teach all of us this morning because Mary is in a conversation with this gardener for a long time before she even realises who she's talking to. It's not until Jesus says her name, Mary, that she turns and answers him in Aramaic, Rabboni, the penny drops. Now I know who I'm talking to. And before we beat Doubting Thomas up a little bit, can I just press the pause button? What, what Mary Magdalene and the disciples have a lesson to teach everybody in this room is do you know, you can sit under the best preaching for three years. Uh, Jesus was the best preacher the universe has ever known. You can sit under the best preaching for three years. You can be an eyewitness to the most glorious and profound miracles, but yet when the pressure comes on, you can still run for the hills. The most important and transformational moment for the disciples wasn't all the miracles, it wasn't all the teachings, it was when they saw the risen saviour. That's what transformed their lives. We're talking 12 guys that are reduced to 11, that are nothing but flaky fishermen that will conquer. Even Rome will admit some years later, some decades later, Rome will say, we have lost to the Christians. They outnumber us. An emperor in Rome will stand up and say, the Christians outnumber us. For a moment, can we pause? Something transformational happened to these guys. The most important thing for our life, miracles are great. Praise God. If the resurrection teaches us anything, it teaches us this. There is a God of the miraculous, right? It opens our eyes to the wonderment of the supernatural. But the greatest transformational moment in our lives is when we will see Jesus. Let's, let's move on. Verse 25. So the other disciples told him, that's Thomas, we have seen the Lord. That's exactly what Mary said. I have seen the Lord. And what they mean by the word see is uh, we have looked upon, we have perceived, and we have experienced. I've got good news for everybody in this room this morning, wherever you are at. The greatest evidence for the existence of God, the greatest evidence for the validity of who Jesus is, is that he can be known and experienced personally today. There are over 2 billion people across the globe today that will stand up this morning on resurrection morning and say, we have seen the Lord. But imagine how this news reaches the ears of Thomas, right? Thomas is standing there going, you know what, if what you are telling me is true, this has enormous implications for my life. Yes, it's glorious. Yes, it can bring great joy to my life. But hang on a second. If what you're telling me is true, then Jesus is God. And everything Jesus said is true, and all of a sudden, Thomas realises in this moment that any kind of a half-hearted, mediocre kind of response to Christ is not going to suffice anymore. Before we go any further this morning, uh, I'll save you the trouble. If you work your way through the Gospel accounts, we will find that there are only ever three responses to the person of Jesus. Uh, There's only ever three ways that anybody responded to Jesus. The first one was, they hated him and wanted to kill him. Second one is they were afraid of him and they ran away from him. And the third one is that they were completely and utterly besotted with him and cast the fullness of their life on him. Mm-hmm. And so this morning, I want to ask you before we go any further, which one of those best describes you this morning? Because there's no middle ground. Before we, The resurrection doesn't allow us to have a lukewarm kind of a middle ground. Somewhere over the last 2,000 years, uh, amongst Christendom, we have invented this kind of half-hearted, I'll plug in when I want to kind of Christianity. None of that is found in the Bible anywhere. None of those responses are a satisfactory response for Christ. I've got good news for you today. You are in or you are out. I'm Not one foot in and one foot out. There's no fence to sit on. The resurrection removes the line. You've got to cross the line. Thomas is standing at that line right now. We have seen the Lord. Hang on a second. If what you're telling me is true, that I'm standing at a line and if I cross that line, I can never go back. We'll explain what that looked like for Thomas, but he didn't go back. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, but but he said to him, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Oh, how we live in a generation that says exactly those same words. I don't know how many times I've had a conversation with people uh, about Christ and they say, you know what, Uh, maybe if Jesus comes down and puts on a little bit of a show and a wiggle and a jiggle for me, maybe then I'll believe in him. Chances are you won't, because he's already given us uh, the greatest sign in the universe. Uh, Jesus, uh, they asked Jesus, the Pharisee said, by what authority are you doing this? We need a sign that demands what authority you do this. He says, no sign will be given because an adulterous and wicked generation seeks sign. What does he say? No sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. As Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man shall be in the belly of the earth. What's the sign? The resurrection. Yes. Uh, if we read the parable of, uh, in Luke chapter 16, you can read the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, and there's a really important point towards the end, uh, the rich man who ends up separated on the other side of the chasm, he says, let me go back and tell my family. And what does the parable tell us? If they didn't believe Moses and the prophets, even if you go back, they're not going to believe. We're going to see in a moment that Jesus actually doesn't rebuke Thomas for his doubt. We're going to see in a moment that Jesus meets Thomas right where he's at. That's my story. I had a lot of questions when I came to Christianity. I had a lot of questions. If this God wants the driver's seat in my life, you ask my family, wherever we travel in the car, I drive. And most of the men said amen, right? But but for me, if somebody wanted the driver's seat of my life, I was a bit like Thomas, I need, Thomas doesn't want a sign, he wants evidence. There's so many people think, you know, all these Christians go to church, they check their brain out at the door, they live by blind faith. Blind faith is superstition. Faith in Jesus is a faith that is grounded firmly in evidence. I believe in the person of Jesus Christ. I believe in the fact that God exists and I believe that because there's strong evidence. And this morning, uh, I'm going to ask that for a moment, we place our finger in that hole and we place our hand in that. So let's ask the question, is there actually any valid evidence? Is Are we just, is this just superstition? Is this just another fairy tale? Is Easter all about the Easter bunny and eggs and holidays? Uh, Hey, here's a message for Australia. If you don't believe in Jesus, then go back to work tomorrow. Otherwise, where are you? See, pastor goes on holidays and he gets grumpy. You see, that's what happens. <laughs> Is there any evidence? Let's cover off a few ones real quickly. Uh, when it comes to the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is enormous evidence for all of it. Uh, let's just touch on and breeze across uh, the most important pointers. When it comes to the life of Jesus of Nazareth, there are what we call minimal facts. Uh, these minimal facts, uh, we'll breeze through them quickly. Minimal facts are facts that uh, 90 bis, 98% of scholars across the globe agree to these facts. They are historical facts, they are irrefutable facts and 98% of those scholars include atheists and sceptics. Here are a few of those. Uh, uh, the first one is that Jesus of Nazareth is actually a real person that was born somewhere between 4 and 2 BC. Uh, that Jesus of Nazareth was baptised by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. Irrefutable historical evidence for that. That Jesus of Nazareth, he's Good Friday already gone, but Jesus of Nazareth was crucified horribly under the then reigning governor Pontius Pilate. We don't just find those accounts in the Bible. We find those accounts in in Roman historical accounts, Tacitus and others. Uh, We find those in places like Josephus, uh, who was a Pharisee. Remember, the Jews hated Jesus. Here's the last one. 78% of scholars across the globe. And the reason the number's lower is because most of the sceptical scholars will openly admit, we don't want to admit the implications that might come with this truth tomb is empty. Over 78% of scholars across the globe say we cannot put a body in that tomb. But here's what they do do. We know the tomb is empty. We, it's irrefutable according to history. Uh, so uh, what we're going to do is we're going to make up some preposterous now, bear in, bear in mind for a moment, I'm going to give you... These are, these are well-educated guys, got more letters after their name than I'll ever have, I can tell you that. But these guys, uh, I'm supposed to be the crazy one, right? But have a listen to some of these answers. Uh, the answer is, uh, well, the tomb's empty and that's because uh, Jesus never really died. He actually swooned on the cross. The whole spear thing must have hurt, right? But he just, he just swooned on the cross and then he resuscitated after three days in the tomb and he was able to roll a two and a half tonne stone slightly uphill make his way out past at least 10 Roman guards without anybody seeing him and slipping out of the city. That's number one. I'm not sure who the crazy one is anymore. Uh, Moving right along, uh, others have said, well, you know what? The disciples stole the body. In fact, the Jews started a rumour. Tell everybody the disciples came and stole the body. We'll pay you money to say that. But let's really work through that. Uh, The disciples came in the middle of the night. They broke a Roman seal, went past at least 10 Roman guards, rolled the stone uphill, snuck out. By the way, took the time when they were stealing the body to neatly fold the grave clothes. (laughs) And then... Take the body out of the city where nobody could ever find it again. Is there evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ? There is resounding evidence. Number one, the tomb is empty. You can't put a body in that tomb. Ask Lee Strobel. Ask Joshua McDowell. They decided we're going to disprove Christianity, so we're going to put a body in that tomb. And what happened was they have committed and converted their life to Christ. Uh, I don't think we should debate God. I, think there's, I don't think there's a room to debate God. We should just proclaim the fact that he exists because that's the truth. But in a debate that I listened to, there was a, a debate between a guy by the name of John Lennox wonderful, humble man, professor of mathematics at, I believe it's Oxford University, and he was debating a guy by the name of Lawrence Krauss, and Lawrence Krauss debated every single point about the existence of God and the validity of Jesus Christ until we got to the empty tomb, and the minute they got to the empty tomb, Lawrence Krauss said, I'm going to give you that one, I'm not even going to offer an argument. It's probably wise, there is no argument. The tomb is empty. Let's keep moving along. Is there anything else? Well, there. what we have in, by the way, the Gospel accounts that you read here, it's a complete story for another day, but the Gospel accounts we read here are the most reliable and accurate historical documents we actually have. As in timelines, time frames, they have suffered the test and the scrutiny of many. But but outside of that, uh, the next one is the post mortem appearances. Uh, Paul, in his creed that he recites in 1 Corinthians 15, that creed came about about three to five years after the resurrection of Christ. And and that creed states that Jesus uh, died, he was buried, and he was raised again. And he says that when he was raised, he appeared to Cephas, Peter, he appeared to James, the half brother of Jesus, and a staunch skeptic who would become the bishop of. Jerusalem and would run the church in Jerusalem, uh, imagine having a half-brother like Jesus. Let's fetch a little bit of, uh, let's put a little bit of kudos over to James. You would be a sceptic, right? Goody-goody two-shoes, right? But, uh, but he never gets into trouble. But the reality is this guy, James, uh, when they sacked the temple in 70 AD, you tell me this guy didn't see the resurrected Christ. When they sacked the temple in 70 AD, he would not stop preaching to the Romans as they're coming in. So they dragged him up to the top of the temple and kicked him off the top of the temple. And to their dismay, he got up and dusted himself off and walked away. That's recorded in Roman history. Later, he would be killed with a sword. He appeared to Cephas, he appeared to James. And the only explanation that sceptical scholars have for the post-mortem appearances, because they're like, you know what, when we read these accounts, there is no doubt, these guys believed they saw something. You don't die for a lie, right? Watergate teaches us you can't keep a lie for over a week, for those that were around in the times of Nixon and Watergate, but it teaches us that 12 men can't keep a lie for any length of time, but uh, they say they must have, they must have hallucinated. And you know what, maybe one person here and there may have hallucinated, but Paul goes on and says, uh, he appeared to Cephas, he appeared to James, and he appeared to over 500 people at once who were still alive. 500 people don't see the same hallucination. That didn't even happen in the 70s. (laughs) (laughs) And the last one, which incorporates the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, is the rapid expansion of the church. How else do you explain that? How else do you explain the rapid expansion of the church? Uh, uh, Saul of Tarsus had a rabbi by the name of Gamaliel... And early on in the book of Acts, you can read this for yourself, early on in the book of Acts, they're wondering what they're going to do with these disciples because they're beginning to fill Jerusalem with their teaching. What a wonderful statement. And so Gamaliel says, look, let's have a look all the way down through history, shall we? Uh, How many people have come before Jesus? We've had all these rebel gurus come up and and a band of followers follow them for a time. But whenever the guru dies, everything just fizzles out and dies. So Gamaliel says, let these guys alone. It's just going to fizzle out and die. And that is actually the historical record apart from the church. In 2,000 years, they have thrown everything they had. The Roman Empire threw everything they had at the church, but they could not stop the rapid expansion of the church because of the amount of believers that were convinced we have seen, we have experienced, and we have perceived the risen saviour. This morning the evidence is clear, the testimony of billions of people is clear, he is risen, he is risen indeed. Let's see what happens to young Thomas. Eight days later, it's a bit over a week, eight days later his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. be handy at the bank. Jesus came and stood among them and he said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, turn straight to Thomas. Jesus wasn't there when the disciples had the conversation. Jesus wasn't present physically to hear this, but he obviously heard the conversation. (laughs) turns to Thomas and says to Thomas, you can put your finger here. Put your finger here. See my hands, put out your hand and place it in my side. He goes on to Thomas and says, do not disbelieve, but believe. Or in the Greek... Stop disbelieving and believe. Interesting thing is, Thomas doesn't take him up on his offer. He doesn't put his finger in the hole. There's no evidence that he placed his hand in his side. Why? Because Jesus is standing before him. He doesn't need to. Uh, Jesus is asking him to stop disbelieving but believe, and that word believe, uh, John, the evangelist and the apostle in this gospel, he uses this word 99 times. Every time he uses it, it's a verb, and it means not just something you agree with in your mind. This isn't, I agree with a certain amount of facts, this isn't that's a pleasant amount of evidence, this is uh, you casting the fullness of your trust and reliance in a person. This isn't, a, this isn't about uh, cutting and pasting all of this to suit us. And, and people outside the church aren't as guilty of that as everybody can be guilty of cutting and pasting a Jesus. We, we want a Jesus that's going to fill seats, so let's cut and paste a Jesus until everybody's happy. But you can't do that and believe. Jesus says, Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. I think the word my there is profound. The word Lord means owner and master. The word God speaks of the creator of all things and the owner of all things. In that moment, Thomas says, I have seen Jesus. You are my Lord and my God. Thomas got it. Thomas saw the Lord. From this moment on, Thomas would take the gospel to India, and for our Indian friends that may or may not be among us, if you've spent any time in India, you may have heard of St. Thomas. St. Thomas would take the gospel en route. He would preach in other areas, but he would take the gospel to India. And after being told by those who were in authority to stop preaching many times, he would not. Until they, for those who know what this means, until they publicly... And horrendously flayed him. Something happened to young Thomas. Something very transformational. And something very profound. Because he saw the Lord. I'm going to ask Karen, we're going to come around the Lord's table now. I'm going to ask if the the stewards could hand out the emblems this morning. And this morning we're going to finish with a song. Karen's going to quietly play and then we'll join in towards the end to come around the table of the Lord. The song is, He is Lord. (laughs) He is Lord. He is risen from the dead and He is Lord. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is risen and He is Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. Uh, The Gospel of John... What brings us, uh, I love the Gospel of John. The Synoptic Gospels tell us about what Jesus did, they tell us about what Jesus taught, but the Gospel of John tells us who Jesus is. And right in the very first chapter, if we went back to the very first chapter of the Gospel of John, uh, John writes his Gospel later than the others, and he's writing to Greeks, he's writing to Jews, he's writing to the philosophers and the thinkers of his time, and he wants them to know that in the beginning was the Word, that that means logos. And to the Greeks and to the philosophers, that means that Jesus is the ultimate explanation. Explanation. To all of you robe-wearing Greek philosophers that spend all your days sitting around talking about the meaning of life and you can observe all of, the, all of the ebb and flow of life and the seasons and the rhythms of life and you're trying to understand what it all means, John writes, Jesus is the explanation for everything you see. And to the Jews he would write exactly the same message for for the Jews that are searching the prophets, for the Jews that are searching the law, for those that are waiting for the Messiah and looking for an explanation for everything that's written in the Torah, Jesus is the ultimate explanation. And friends, this morning, as we come around the table of the Lord, can we remember that today, Jesus is the ultimate explanation? for those that are searching inside of themselves wondering what is life all about what is the meaning and what is the purpose of life Jesus is the ultimate explanation and is there more to life than this we see that in the empty tomb that there is so much more there is a glorious life that awaits those who are in Christ to those that are lost in their sin today Jesus is the ultimate explanation Maybe you just wandered in here this morning and thinking, what is this whole Easter thing all about? Jesus is the ultimate explanation. Why do sometimes people suffer? Jesus taught us, showed us and modelled us that God promises to be with us in our suffering. That's what we learn from the cross on Good Friday. He's not removed from our grief and he's not removed from our sorrows, but he stepped right into them. Thanks for listening to the Rock Christian Church podcast. To be notified when the next episode is available, subscribe on our website at therock.org.au. You can also connect with us on Facebook at The Rock Christian Church. We hope you have been blessed today and we look forward to you joining us for our next episode.